Hello and welcome to Step Into The Past, the podcast where we take you back in time to follow in the footsteps of our ancestors, brought to you by Find My Past. Throughout this series, we'll be uncovering the family tree of a different guest each week, and we'll be visiting a central location in the lives of their ancestors, a location cared for by the National Trust. What secrets can these locations reveal about the lives of people who lived or worked there through the generations. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, historian, author, and TV presenter. I've always been fascinated by stories of people from the past and how they experienced the world. I particularly enjoy uncovering the mysteries behind family history and how these can be pieced together through historical records, which we'll be doing plenty of throughout this series. For this first episode, however, something a little different. With the help of an expert, I'm going to be discovering the history of my own family tree. And to help me, I'm delighted to welcome an expert from Find My Past, Ellie Ayton. Ellie, welcome to Step Into the Past. Thank you so much for having me today. So you are a family history expert at Find My Past. First of all, Tell me a little bit about your role and what you do at Find My Past. Absolutely. So yeah, I work for Find My Past. We're a family tree company. And in my role, I help people uncover fascinating stories about their own family trees and family stories just like the ones you have in your family tree. We have billions of records and interconnected trees on our website, which means that anybody can start researching their family tree and uncovering stories about their ancestors. Amazing. And today you're going to help me discover my past and uncover the lives of my ancestors. I am indeed, yeah. We have a few surprises in store for you, actually, including hopefully revealing ancestors on your mother's side uh, that I think you may not yet know. So very, very exciting. Uh, we've got some ancestors who played roles in both world wars as well as how your family tree spans a great deal of the globe. They were very well-traveled indeed. So we'll be hearing about family members across three different continents. There is a lot to uncover. Shall we delve in? Yeah, I can't wait. So before we get started as to what we've found at Family Past and your family tree, Susanna, I know you've already done a little bit of work yourself. So what do you know so far? Well, I know quite a lot about the Lipscombs. So my paternal grandfather's family, his parents, I sit at the desk of my great grandfather, Frederick Martin Lipscomb, known as Martin Lipscomb's death. And I know about the family of my great grandmother, Dorothy Octavia Robinson. So I know about the Robinsons because my great aunt always used to talk to me about the aunts, the Robinsons. And, so, and then I can trace the Lipscomb line back more or less, at least the 18th century, I think we can go back to about 1660, but it's, it becomes quite straight down the patrial nominal line and you know, the women get left out a bit sometimes, don't they? Quite often they do, yes. And what do you know about your paternal side of your family? What do you know about their roles in, in World War I or World War II? Well, I know that my great-grandfather was in the Royal Army Medical Corps. I have a trunk at home that was his that says not wanted on voyage, um, which has his address in Farnham. So I know that. I know that he uh, served at Chelsea Hospital and that he was a doctor. So yes, Martin, your 
great-grandfather, he actually served over in India and Mesopotamia in, until 1921. And he stayed in India until 1941 as a medical specialist. And he was a commanding officer at the British Military Hospital in Multan. And Martin married uh, your great-grandmother, Dorothy? Yes. Dorothy Octavia Robinson in 1913 in South Wimbledon. And then, do you know anything about his time in the Second World War at all? I think he was, as you said, in Mesopotamia, and I know about the end of the war. So your great-grandfather, Martin Lipscomb, he was part of the relief effort at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Is there anything you happen to know? It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, so he was a doctor. So he was asked in because there were problems with feeding people who had been in a concentration camp. They were starving. And so the first and natural thing for people to do is to try and give them loads of food, but actually the, their systems couldn't process it. So he was invited in to help design a diet, really, for these people. And I know this because he published a paper on it. I think it's in The Lancet. And I have a copy of it somewhere, though <laughs> I don't necessarily understand all the medicine. An amazing legacy. Yes, I mean, a lot of people did some very good things during the war, didn't they? And I think there is a sense that we don't really know all of the sacrifices or, or all of the sights that that generation saw, because that was a generation that very much um, kept themselves closed and didn't boast about what they'd done and kept the horrors within them. So we're all sort of beneficiaries of the fact that they held it back. That's a particularly powerful story. How does that make you feel then? I mean, I feel very proud of my great-grandparents and my grandparents and, and these generations who did this. And I feel particularly touched. I sit to work at my great-grandfather's desk. My parents gave it to me when I um, made professor. And so I have this sort of sense of connection to him on a daily basis, despite him never knowing who I am, <laughs> who I became, and I never met him. And that's strange, isn't it, this connection we have with these ancestors of ours? I think that's a wonderful, wonderful legacy and a wonderful memento of his that you have. And uh, that will stay with you now. I think that's just lovely. And did you know, actually, in 1945, Martin was honoured by the king himself uh, for distinguished services during the liberation of prisoners in German concentration camps. And he's actually, he was actually added to the central chancery of the orders of knighthood in the London Gazette military notices. So his work that. is preserved there. That's wonderful. How much do you know about your two times great-grandparents then? So Frederick Bell Lipscomb and Ethel White. So he was a curate and the story goes that Ethel had married beneath herself. <laughs> My great-aunt Sylvia, who only died eight years ago and with whom I was very close, used to say that when she was a child they'd occasionally get hampers from Fortnum and Mason <laughs> when they they couldn't afford them at all as a family but from Ethel <laughs> so there was obviously all Ethel's relatives some money somewhere uh, and also he died a pretty horrific death he did yes so very very tragically at the age of just 46 
on the 27th of September, 1899, Frederick fell off his bicycle and he died. He was, you're right, a, a curate, a vicar at the time in Flitwick. And he left Ethel, your two times great grandmother, with five children under the age of 12. How do you think that would have been for her? I mean, absolutely terrible. He also, when he was hit, I think it was a runaway horse, or it was doing his rounds, I think, as a vicar. He was carried into the pub and he laid it out there and I think it took him a couple of days to die. It was a pretty horrible death. But you imagine that. So the eldest, I think, was my great-grandfather, Martin, and five children <laughs> under the age of 12 and just trying to make it all work. And as I've said, she had some relatives who were clearly helping out. But still, how devastating. He was 46. I mean, I'm 44. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. Actually, when you hear these stories when you're a child, obviously 46 sounds like as old as the moon, but now it seems pretty close. Yeah, when you put things into context a little bit like that, yes. Um, and did you know there is actually a, a stained glass window uh, in his church uh, that's dedicated to him? I didn't know. At Flitwick? Yeah, you'll have to go and have a look at it. I will. To go oh, wow. Pay, uh, pay your respects to his, his window. Gosh, that sh suggests that he was quite popular among his parishioners. <laughs> So the Lipscombs are the paternal side of your family that you were quite familiar with already. Um, did we manage to unearth anything that you didn't know? So far, I'm familiar with the history because there was pretty good record keeping in my family. And I've got archives, I mean, especially kept by Martin. So I'd inherited those stories. Where it gets a bit murky for me is relating to either my grandmother, Margaret. So that was my paternal grandmother and on my mother's side. In that case then, we'll move on to the rules. So this is the side of your father's family that you know less about. So hopefully there'll be a few surprises in here for you. So the rules have a fascinating story that spans the globe at the height of the British Empire. We're talking India to the United States and then of course the United Kingdom. This story traces a rise in social standing on both sides of the family that led to grace your grandmother to effectively marry into British gentry. And actually, like Frederick Martin, she's known as Margaret, so by her second name. So she's Grace Margaret Rule and married my grandfather, Chris, in this very sh short period of time. They met and fell in love in three months. And I know nothing about her family beyond her surname being Rule. So this is fascinating for me. Excellent. So what we'll do is, to start this story, we're going to go all the way back to the American Civil War. Okay. So we're going to start with Jonathan and Susan Rule, your three times great-grandparents. So the scene is the American Civil War, and Jonathan served as a private in Company G of the 164th Ohio Infantry Regiment of the Union Army, that was the National Guard. And the sources that we've had a look at indicate that the Rule family originated in either Holland or in Essex in England. <laughs> okay. One or the other. And if we go back even further, we believe they arrived in Pennsylvania in the 1760s, along with other people fighting during the time of the American Revolution. Ah, so you see, oh, I've, I've got a little bit of American in me then. <laughs> you have, yes, absolutely. Going quite far back. So their son, 
Charles Rule and his wife, Sarah, they were both born in Ohio. Sarah was born in Ohio, but her parents were both born, can you guess, in Germany. Oh, really? In Germany, often indicated as Prussia in the sources. Um, so Charles was a grocery dealer and following his business card, he was successful in his business. And when he died in 1915, he was considered very, very well regarded and well regarded enough to have his death mentioned in the local newspapers. We actually have a copy of the obituary here. Oh, wow. And it goes into a lot of detail about his, his life and his associates. He was engaged in business and by his upright life and correct business methods made numerous friends. Wow, that's rather wonderful, isn't it? It's very touching. <laughs> it's always something when you find an obituary for a direct ancestor and not one that just says, this person passed away and this is when their funeral is. This is a really, really detailed obituary and it, it shows us that he was so well esteemed in his community and in, 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 the, um, in the local area. I mean, by his upright life and correct business methods, he made numerous friends. That's the sort of line each of us hopes might be put in our obituaries, right? Exactly. Like, actually, they were a decent person, they conducted themselves well, and they were, people liked them. <laughs> I mean, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it, really? Exactly. How does that feel, reading that, then? Well, moving. It feels really moving. Um, Try not to um, be all sniffy. So because Charles Rule was so well thought of and he worked himself up from relatively humble beginnings, actually, he had five children and he was able to educate those five children. And this might be why one of his children, William, was able to become a dental surgeon. Ah. Do you like, do you, do you like going to the dentist? I mean, who likes going to the dentist? <laughs> So now we're going to have a look at your two times great-grandfather, William Rule. Now, he was born on the 25th of July, 1884, in Clyde, Ohio. And he lived quite a life, I'm not going to lie. He, um, he actually arrived in India on the 17th of June, 1910. He was 26 years old, quite a young man at the time, to practice as a dental surgeon. Now, he worked across India in this trade for many, many decades. And this is where he met Nellie Orne in Bombay, India, and they got married in 1913. And they had three children, including your grandmother, Margaret. So it's really interesting because we've had, I always thought the India connection in my family came from my paternal great-grandfather, Martin. But actually, it turns out that on Margaret's side as well, the family's been there for a really long time. I, I just didn't know that they were present there for so many decades. I, I know that my grandparents met in India and I've gone to where they met and all the rest of it, but I didn't realize that their presence there was already you know, three decades long by that point in time. Very well established. So we've got William who came from relatively humble beginnings. He was educated well and became a dental surgeon. Um, but Nellie, his wife, also came from relatively humble beginnings. And she was born in 1882 in Sutton Bonington in Nottinghamshire. Oh, goodness. Yes, you have some Not Nottinghamshire ancestry as well. Now, her father was a fireman and her mother was a machinist. And the couple moved um, the, the whole family from England to New Jersey 
1906. I mean, they really are all over the place, aren't they? <laughs> they really are, yes. Now, this is a time where there is a huge boom in immigration to the US in the early 20th century from Europe. There were just better economic prospects over there for them. Um, they probably thought they would have a, a much better life over there. And she was Nellie. She was clearly very, very adventurous. She had a real adventurous streak in her. We have found photos that show her love of outdoor sports, for example. And she was moving around herself as well. So from the UK to the US, India, Canada, all through her life. She, she wasn't sitting still. She was always going out doing things and seeing things. We're not sure how she ended up in India, but she was there by 1913 when she met William, aged 31. And here we go. We have first an undated photograph of her. And then we also have a photograph of both of them in India as well. I find this really touching, not least because the great grandparents I know about married also in 1913. And I've seen pictures of them all my life and I've never seen these pictures before. And these are also my great grandparents. It's a really special moment where you see a photograph of a great-grandparent you never you never had the chance to meet. I never even knew their names, let alone have a chance to meet them. These are the first time I've ever looked at them. Nellie in particular, as we can see from photographs that we found, that real adventurous spirit. She has a certain chutzpah. She looks slightly challenging. I mean, it might be just the way that she's looking at the camera and you had to stay still for photographs at the time, but there's a certain defiance about her. And then what are they holding? Oh, they've been hunting, haven't they? Look, they're holding birds. That's the sort of thing they did back then in India, but they're smiling. And they've obviously had a jolly time of it. Birds, not so much. Oh, and here they are later. Now they've become quite respectable. They're wearing very smart tweed suits and both wearing glasses. But what's interesting there, in the later picture of them, I can see the shape of her face is very much like my grandmother's face. And my grandmother, you know, left, married very quickly to my grandfather. They left India after the war. And I don't think she ever saw them again. I don't know that she ever saw them again. So that's why I haven't known this history. Well, her parents actually moved to Canada together. And that's where they spent the rest of their lives together, and that's where they're both buried. How did you find these? <laughs> that's amazing. It's amazing to see them. I'm finding it really moving. Thank you. I can imagine. So we've gone back a few generations on your father's side. We've had a look at the Lipscombs. We've had a look at the rules. What do you know about your mother's side of the family then? My mother was adopted when she was two weeks old. Um, her adoptive parents, uh, Charlie and Betty, Fairmainer, I knew very much growing up, my, my nanny and granddad. And I met my Betty's mother, we called Nanny Kay because her surname was Kettle. <laughs> and later in life, when my mother was in her 30s, 
she sought out her birth parents. So we know that my mother, we know my mother's original name. And I've just told you the sum total of what I know. <laughs> okay. So as you know, your mum is named Marguerite. Certainly is. So we actually have a copy of her original birth certificate. Oh, do you? Which I will. I think the only one we have is, um, is the later one when the name's changed. So although Marguerite was born Rita Watson, we will from now on refer to her as Marguerite, as you know her. So when Marguerite was born, her parents are, were a married couple and they were living at 88 Chart Lane. This is a semi-detached house in Rygate. We actually have a, a photograph of that just here for you. This was where they were living when your mum was born. It's funny because quite recently I lived quite near Rygate. I left a couple of years ago. Do you know what? This house, it makes me a little bit angry, to be perfectly honest, because it's a very decent looking house. It's got a lovely bay window. It's, you know, it's a semi. It's not somebody who's struggling for money. But they chose to have my mother adopted, and I find that quite painful. I can completely appreciate that. I'm going to draw your attention back to the, the birth certificate for a moment. It's quite small, but what is very unusual here is a note made in the margin. Oh, that's interesting. This indicates the fact that this adoption was pre-arranged. So adoptions like these weren't necessarily done through official channels like they are today, for example. And what we seem to think is the, the registrar made a little note here to confirm that, that that's what, what had happened. Some arrangement had taken place uh, before your mum was born, so she would be adopted by, by the fair mainers. The immediate thing that suggests to me is that Harold doubted it was his child. Don't you think? I don't know of any evidence, but I'm just thinking, why would you... Unless you have decided there are just too many mouths to feed, but that house doesn't look like there are too many mouths to feed. It feels like there's more, more to figure out there. We haven't been able to ascertain why your mum was put up for adoption. It's possible that they were unable to care for her, perhaps. Their marriage may have been in trouble by this point because Joan would actually remarry in 1960. We also wonder whether Harold had a part to play in the Second World War as well, but we've been unable to, to ascertain that, but it could have been a factor. So Olive Joan Smith, uh, Joan, your, your grandmother, she was born in 1911 in Brixton and her parents, your great-grandparents, were Charles and Alice Smith. Now, Charles, he was a traveling salesman and he sold biscuits and chocolates for uh, a company called Peak Freens & Co. Limited Biscuit and Chocolate Manufacturers. This was a huge London-based manufacturer and they invented Garibaldi biscuits and twiglets. I love Garibaldi biscuits. <laughs> you didn't mention those. <laughs> Squash fly biscuits we used to call them when I was a child. I love Marmite. So good. Although, actually, <laughs> my brother used to call me Twiglet because he used to say my arms look like Twiglets. That's my chief association with Twiglets. Charles and Alice actually had another child. So when we found them in the 1911 census, which was dubbed the fertility census, 
we actually discovered that they had another child before Joan and tragically she died in infancy. Oh goodness. And then two years later, after the 1911 census, the family moved to Westcliff-on-Sea in Essex, probably for, uh, for Charles's job, and that's where Joan was baptised. So yes, this is, this is uh, Charles Smith here in the 1921 census, and they were living at 56 Cornfield Road in Rygate in 1921. How interesting. Wow. And then if we skip ahead a little bit, by the time of the 1939 register, Joan is a young working woman. She's working as a bank clerk. Um, she's living with her parents. And at this point, they've moved back to Rygate, uh, probably for Charles's work, because he probably moved around a lot for his job as well. Okay, right. Did you know any of that at I all? I didn't know any of this any at, of all. at all, no. And I didn't know that Joan was working as a bank clerk either. So nine years after your mum was born, uh, your grandmother, Joan, she, she remarried. In 1960 to a man called Charles Badger. Now Charles was in the, the baking industry. He on his marriage certificate was listed as a foreman bread baker journeyman. It's a very very long title. So he was doing that in and around London. So there are a few things that strike me about that. One is that my grandparents marriage might well have been in troubles around the time of my mother's birth or soon afterwards if she's marrying again in 1960 because divorces took time. And she's marrying someone who's older than her, what, by a dozen years or so. And the fact that he is in the same sort of business as her father had been suggests why maybe they've met and maybe he's an associate of her father. That explains the age gap, I don't know. I'm also struck by the fact he's a journeyman because the journeyman is an entry level. You haven't become a master of your trade. So it suggests that he hasn't got perhaps as quite as far in life <laughs> as one might have hoped at that age. Okay, so that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of him before. Yeah, so yeah, as you say, they, they may have met through work, um, through the, the baking industry. Um, it's entirely possible. Cakes brought them together. Do you enjoy spending time in the garden at all? Do you consider yourself particularly green-fingered? I love spending time in the garden and I have moments of mania about it, but I have quite a busy life. So my garden goes through fits and starts. It needs sort of more regular care. <laughs> so I love it, but I don't do it as much as I'd like to. So we're going to talk a little bit now about your two times great-grandparents on your mum's side. So we've got Edwin Dennis Smith, born in 1882 in Sheffield. We're all over the place, aren't we? You, you are, we're putting yet another pin on your family history map. So Edwin, he was married to Mary Jemima Nicholson and Edwin was a gardener. So Edwin Dennis Smith was born in 1882 in Sheffield and by 1901, he and his wife Mary, they've moved the family down to Epsom in Surrey. Um, because we find them at the gardener's cottage at a house at Barrow Hedges. Are you familiar with Barrow Hedges at all? No, I don't think so. No? Um, so the house sadly is no longer there. This is an Epsom in Surrey. Well, um, I know Epsom you in know Surrey. Epsom. Yeah, I, my parents lived just down the road. I, grew, I went to school in Epsom. I, this is so strange. So until a few years ago, I lived in, I lived for a couple of years during lockdown in Banstead, which is just between... Rygate and Epsom. Both these places have come up in this history. It's so strange. 
So the gardeners, um, the house itself near Barrow Hedges, it was owned by a man called Henry Jenks. Now he was a brewery proprietor. Okay, so I guess he was a man with money. So he's employing Edwin as his gardener. That's right, yes. And, you know, he wants his place to look nice. He does. He, wants, he wants his nice lawn looking... <laughs> look, exactly. He wants his lawn looking nice. He wants, as you say, a nice beer garden. And it's such a lovely part of the world. I mean, it's a really beautiful part of the world in horticultural terms. I'm amazed to discover an ancestor working there. In that part of the world, it's such a small world, isn't it? It feels extraordinary to me that my child was born in Epsom. And actually, we have here evidence that my ancestors lived there too. Amazing. Well, we've almost come full circle. We've gone all the way around the world today looking at your, your family tree. We've been to India, we've been to Ohio, we've been to Canada. And now we're coming back home to Epsom in Surrey. Oh, let's not forget Essex. We had Essex on the <laughs> way too. Let's not forget <laughs> Essex. How does that feel then to know that you've got ancestral family connections all over the world? It's exciting. I love the fact that we're clearly the sort of people, if you can make generalisations about character from this, that don't stay still. I mean, travelling salesmen, <laughs> whether it's dentists or gardeners, everybody's getting up and, and going somewhere. Do you recognise that inability to stand still a little bit in yourself at all? I certainly have a, an interest in seeing other places and have lived in other countries. So I guess it is in me as well. And experiencing life to the full. I think we're all interested in that, aren't we? <laughs> so we've had a look at your father's side. We've had a look at your mother's biological side. Um, how do you feel now, now that you know a little bit more about where she came from. I'm very interested. I mean, I feel that it, there's still the central mystery about the adoption. But of course, it's very interesting to know something about one's bloodlines. But from my point of view, I consider her real parents to be the people who parented her. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Fairmainers then. Um, so your mother, she was born Rita in 1951. She became Marguerite Fairmainer. How much do you know about the Fairmainers then and their family history? I know my granddad, Charlie, and that's all I know. Okay. So, yes, so your mum was adopted by Charles Fairmainer and Betty. Now, you know a little bit about Betty in terms of her surname. Oh, yes. I mean, and, you know, I know her in character as well. I mean, we <laughs> I spent a lot of time with my grandparents as a child and I knew she was a kettle. So, and I knew my great-grandmother, as I say, when I was a very small child. Fantastic surname Kettle, isn't it? <laughs> Betty Kettle. It's a great name. And in fact, Betty has been a little bit of a tough nut for our researchers to crack, mm. actually. Luckily, we actually found a key piece of information that unlocked Betty's story in a way we could never have imagined. So we're very, very excited by this. And it was all a newspaper clipping. Okay, go a on. A newspaper article, and it managed to solve this little mystery for us of who Betty was and where she came from. So in July 1940, a lady called Betty Florence Joan Parker married a private Leslie Leonard Lockhead in Richmond. So the newspaper reported that Betty's biological father was dead. 
sadly, her mother had remarried a man named Cyril Kettle. Aha. Uh-huh. So he was Betty's stepfather. The newspaper article is very, very sweet describing the wedding. It also goes on to say that when she married, her sisters and her her cousin were her bridesmaids. So this is Betty's wedding, this my grandmother's wedding? Yes. Oh, wow. The reason it was in the papers is because Private Lockhead was on 48-hour leave from the army. Gosh, I guess people did that during the war, right? They had a sense that they might die tomorrow, and so they seized the day and married quickly, so they would have been married if anything happened. But Private Lockhead is not my grandfather. No, he's not. You're absolutely right. So because of this one newspaper article that describes her first marriage, this very, very exciting 48-hour, not quite runaway marriage, but along those sorts of lines, very, very exciting. Because of this one newspaper article, we know that Betty Kettle was born Betty Parker and then later becomes Betty Fairmainer. So after her first marriage, uh, Betty, now with the surname Lockhead, she married the grandfather you knew, uh, Charles Fairmainer in 1947 in Deptford in London. And then the pair go on to adopt Rita four years later, changing her name to Marguerite. So it's, something happened after my grandmother died which is that we discovered um, in her bedside table under the lining of the drawer pictures of a, a young child and it seems that my grandparents met during the war um, so perhaps her first wedding had been during the war but then she met Charlie as he was known thereafter and obviously they fell in love. I have a picture of them and uh, when he's in uniform. And I guess they must have had an affair because it seems that the child, so Betty's child, went with, I didn't know his name before, but with Leslie Lockhead. And after the age of three, she never saw him again. Gosh. And I don't know if she couldn't have any more children or what what the situation was, but she, my mother says she was always obsessed with babies and infants and didn't have much interest in children after they reached a certain age, which obviously wasn't great for my mother. Um, but this is a very sad story. It, and that's sort of, you know, the, the cost of these things. At that time, you could do that sort of thing um, and take a child away from its mother. So, as I say, we discovered these pictures after she died. That's quite an emotional thing to discover then. Yes. I think the generations before ours carried around so much pain and shame because there was a sense of needing to behave correctly. And yet during the war, you know, all bets were off. Everyone thought that they might die tomorrow and, you know, they felt like they had to live. Um, But the costs of this were really great. Yes. Very powerful stuff. Clearly, they were very keen to have a child. And so as much as I can feel annoyed (laughs) at the Watsons for giving her up, you know, the Fairmainers, as they were, Betty and Charlie, 
wanted to give her a home. And I read this beautiful thing the other day that one adoptive mother said to her child, which is, you didn't grow under my heart, you grew in my heart. That's and lovely. that sense of uh, being desired, as it seems before she was born, we even see that on the birth certificate. Absolutely, that, that little note. Sorry, I've got goosebumps, you're just telling me that little quote there. That's really, really lovely. Well, Ellie, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for taking me back in time to learn about my family tree. It's been very moving. I am so grateful to you for doing this research, but I guess at Find My Past, you have those resources and I suppose we can figure out these details about our family tree, but I never knew half of this stuff. I didn't know what globetrotters we've been. I didn't know this, the way in which people have worked hard and made themselves from these humble beginnings in order to educate their children, you know, biscuit sellers and <laughs> <laughs> dentists and all the rest among them. And yet I'm also really touched by some of the sad things we've uncovered and it's important to confront those as well. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for letting us look at your, your family tree. Family history is like a puzzle sometimes, and sometimes you just need to take little pieces from India, from Ohio, from Essex, and put them all together. And then you can tell that bigger story, whether it be a story of adventure or excitement or a story of deep emotion, but it's, it's part of what makes you who you are. It certainly is. Well, that's it for this episode of Step Into the Past. My thanks to Ellie Aiton for being such a fantastic guest. Well, you, you hosted it, really. And for uncovering such fascinating insights into my family history. You can find all the info about this episode on the Find My Past website. And you can get started on your own family tree for free. Where will your past take you? I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Join me next time when I'll be at Quarry Bank Mill, an industrial revolution cotton mill cared for by the National Trust. We'll be discovering a family who worked there for many generations, and I'll be joined by one of their living descendants to find out what life would have been like working in that mill. Don't forget to hit follow in your favorite podcast app so you'll be notified whenever a new episode is released. And hopefully I'll be crying a bit less next time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.